there's a passion that develops in these folks and they've lit a fire in me too to be a an evangelist if you will to share the the message of soil health and it doesn't matter what land use we're talking about welcome to the soil health labs podcast engaging ranchers farmers and researchers in the pursuit of healthy functioning soils Welcome back to another episode in the Soil Health Labs podcast. This is the second of two episodes with Tans Herman, state grassland soil health specialist. And as always, I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And Buzz, did you have any kind of intro for the listeners here for this episode? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we often hear the five soil health principles in the context of uh, cropland soil health, and and they're fabulous. Um, what I wanted to bring out from Tense was uh, how we apply these five soil health principles to grazing land. So he we 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 get a little bit technical, but but stick with us because uh, you know he he talks about photosynthesis, he talks about the microbes underground working in concert with the grasses and the forbs above ground. But I think he does it in a fantastic way. And like I said, uh, we talked about adaptive management. And if you remember a few podcasts back, um, Pat Guptill and and all these adaptive managers uh, tend to be a little bit more successful than than their counterparts. And um, um, Tance explains why. And again, you know, that watchword is observe, adapt, repeat. Uh, and I just love that. So, so see that. And then we get into the completely uncontroversial issue of how we uh, deal with cool season invasive species. Uh, keep in mind, I wanted to ask this question. I didn't want to shy away from it because uh, cool season invasives um, are some of the biggest threats to rangeland. And it bears discussion uh, in, a, in a forum like this. And even if we disagree, at least we understand that we face a problem. And, you know, anyone I t- we talk to on this podcast is committed to trying to figure out how we restore resilient rangelands. Well, and kind of ironic timing. Obviously, we'll be releasing this episode a little bit down the line. But just today, I posted adaptive management in the grasslands from our video on bale grazing from all our social media platforms so this is definitely a topic that we've put out content before and i know that tans will articulate it well and give us even more information all right yeah so we'll go ahead and hop out of the way and let you guys enjoy this episode brief announcement here before we hop in there were some technical difficulties in the middle of this interview between tans and buzz We wanted to acknowledge these, but still felt that there was enough value in this episode that it was worth publishing. So please bear with those brief moments and enjoy all of the insights that Tans and Buzz provide in this episode. Thank you. I have a couple of questions here in terms of definitions. And just for our listeners, I was wondering if you could um, walk us through the 
just very briefly the five principles of soil health. You've, you've applied them, but just list them for us so that uh, folks who may not have heard this very often uh, can, can hear those again, please. Certainly, uh, and it's one of those things that, that memory kicks in after a certain number of repetitions. I'm charged with having it memorized in, and I don't expect that everyone does. So thank you for that question, Buzz. Uh, first of the, of the principles, and this would really be the beginning. Um, if we're going to improve soil health and function, we have to stop the bleeding. Ex exposed soil that isn't covered by plants or, or some organic mulch of some kind is bleeding. It's losing topsoil, it's losing organic matter, and often it, it crusts with every rainfall event and then that further impedes processes like air and water exchange and water infiltration and things of that nature. So keep it covered. Armor keep the soil. It covered. Yep. Armor the soil with plant residues however you can. Haying systems, and, and I produce hay for horse owners. Uh, I, I, I have hay ground myself. And this is one of those things where this is necessary. We have to produce some winter feed for, for animals. Can 12 months of the year grazing occur in the Northern Great Plains? Yes, absolutely it can. Will everyone do that? Or will every animal perform under that? No, probably not. So we have hay. Uh, I'm not gonna jump into that unless you ask about it, Buzz, but there are ways that we can produce hay that make sure that our soil armor, our plant material on on all of the soil surface is still occurring even, even in a hay system. Uh, the second principle is optimize soil disturbance. And what we mean by that is, is some hoof impact on the grazing side of things. If we're talking about a cropping system, we just want to reduce or eliminate soil disturbance. Don't till it. You know, don't overuse uh, pesticide products that could be maybe done in a spot treatment type of fashion in instead of you know a broad field scale type of, of deal where we're running sprayer over. Um, so so appropriate but minimal disturbance is the second principle. The third one is to enhance diversity wherever possible. Again, we've got cool and warm season grasses and broad leaves four plant types out there on the landscape. And it doesn't matter where, where in the world you are. Uh, cool season grasses that initiate growth when the, when the, in the springtime, when the snow begins to recede. In fact, many of you will have observed green grass under a snowbank. Um, you're shoveling your sidewalk after a snowfall. And look at that, right at the edge of the concrete is, is some green. It's winter. Those are cool season species. Uh, on the flip side, there's some of those warm season plants that really don't initiate their growth until that soil temperature warms up uh, to 40, 50 degrees or more. And, and those are, are the things that we think of like big blue stem, side oats grama, Indian grass, typically very, very productive, uh, you know, to the tune of tons per acre of production instead of uh, one fifteen hundred or two thousand pounds of production per acre uh, on a given growing season, and I'm using local uh, framework for for the mindset here. But but a lot of our a lot of our ecological sites in western South Dakota, you know, their their annual production on a normal year is probably somewhere between uh, 
on the, on the low end, probably six to eight hundred pounds per acre, and on the high end, you know, up to three or four thousand pounds per acre. And of course, that increases as we move eastward and and have a little bit more rainfall and have a higher warm season component because where I'm at, I would consider it, you know, I live near Sturgis, work out of Rapid City, uh, just 30 miles away. We're in what we would call the mixed grass prairie. If you get east to the Missouri River and points further east from that, you're really moving into, um, it's still mixed grass, but you're getting closer and closer to what historically would have been tall grass prairie, where those warm season plants really, really controlled um, the dominant factor and, and really, really produced. Seasonality of that rainfall comes in that too. The fourth principle buzz, living roots. We've got to have living roots in the soil for as much of the year as possible. Again, on a perennial rangeland system that's native, we have that diversity already in place, cool and warm season plants. Plants are communicating with soil biology through their roots in the rhizosphere throughout the year. It's enhanced during the growing season, but there's a lot happening even through the winter month. And then finally, again, it's implied, but livestock integration. And, and maybe we could add value to that by saying appropriate livestock use at the appropriate time of year uh, for our perennial systems. So let me shorten that answer and say the five principles of soil health are to keep it covered, to reduce, eliminate, or optimize disturbance, depending on your situation, enhance diversity wherever possible in the plants or crop types that are grown, uh, work with living roots as much as possible, understand what kind of plants are growing and when, um, and then integrating livestock appropriately throughout the season. Very good, very good. Well, the last 20 minutes have spawned a whole bunch of new questions for you. So we're going to go down that line. I want you to talk to me um, again about um, adaptive management. Let, let's define that. And why are we seeing adaptive management being so successful in, in rangeland? Well, let's quickly define the term adaptive just in a general sense so that we're all on the same page for listeners included um, what is being adaptive well something in your atmosphere your your circumstances changes and then you adapt right that's you 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 change your behavior based upon the circumstances you're presented with okay so putting that in the agricultural concept context what is adaptive management and why is it why is it catching ahead of steam and why are why are folks that are applying these principles of adaptive management being so successful and so excited and wanting to share their story with other farmers and ranchers so that they can too uh, see that success and become more economically stable and resilient to changes whether that be drought or flood or weed pressures or you know a lot of things that we can't control we need to adapt. So what does that look like and why does it work? 2021 um, throughout much of South Dakota during the growing season was pretty dry. We would have considered it a drought. Um, USDA kicked in a number of emergency programs 
uh, to lack of livestock water, to lack of, of annual forage production, uh, whether that was planted or, or even on, on hay type situations. Uh, some of those metrics kicked in, the safety net kicked in. Did everyone utilize them? Did every farmer rancher that, that was eligible utilize those, those tools? I don't know. I'm not privy to that information. That, that happens more across the hall at our sister agency, Farm Service Agency. A lot did. And, and you know, we're glad the safety net is there for those that, that need it. But I would venture a guess that these folks that we're talking about, adaptive managers, um, maybe didn't need to or didn't at all because they recognized the signs going into what we would call drought conditions early, made appropriate management decisions to protect their natural resources uh, and their living, and and probably didn't see that huge of a negative impact. Was their forage production less? Certainly. Did they have some surface water sources dry up? You bet. Um, they may have already been dry if they've been applying if they've been applying adaptive management for a long time. These are gender grassland coalitions grazing school. Uh, I heard one of the presenters say. If you do the things that we teach you at this school and are used to working with dams or dugouts as your primary water sources, if you leave enough grass behind, if you apply these five principles in the way that we've taught them, you'll find that your surface water sources are going to dry up. It's not because you're getting less rain, but it's because you're, you're reducing the amount of runoff. And instead of letting that runoff, and into a dam or dugout or down to the stream and off the place, you're now infiltrating that water for more forage production. That was kind of a key thing for me to to hear it from the rancher's perspective. If if we do grazing management well, we we run less water off the landscape. More of it goes in the soil, then giving us the benefit of more grass. So back to my original thought though, Last fall, our adaptive managers were recognizing that, hey, we had it was pretty, pretty dry. We didn't get a lot of moisture this fall. That's going to have an impact on early cool season grass growth in the spring. Come March, we still aren't getting our normal snow load. It hasn't rained on warm days and it hasn't snowed either. So we're going to be seeing reduced forage yields. Again, these adaptive managers are recognizing the conditions that are present and forecasting what happens in a month or two, and sometimes six months if we're talking about fall moisture. The middle of April comes and it still hasn't rained near what's normal for your geographic location. We've got to begin to pull the trigger on what are we going to do? We're going to have reduced forage production this year. If we're going to keep the entire herd together, and I don't care if it's cows or sheep or goats or llamas, uh, if we're going to keep this entire herd together and we were already appropriately stocked, we're going to have less forage this year. We have to adapt. We have to adaptively manage. Am I going to go purchase feed? Am I going to go try to lease or rent pasture? Or do some of these animals need to go off-site? That could be to the sale barn. That could be to another operation, someplace that isn't drought affected, um, where someone else will even handle the day-to-day -day care. That could be a feedlot, but it could be a, a grazing management 
already offered for sale type of thing. And I know of some of those contract grazers where you basically show up and drop off your livestock and come back in six or seven months to pick them up. And, and you pay a fee for that. You don't have to worry about them. And versus near where you live and you just, you determine when you turn in and, and take those animals out. So why would, a, why would a producer who's made all of these recognitions that it's gonna be dry, made that decision in December, in March, it's still dry, we're gonna have a problem. In April, it's now critical. We aren't gonna have the same amount of forage. Why is that person um, less likely to need the safety net? They might still use it, they're eligible, fine. Um, why, why is that person going to be more successful? Because on the flip side, hey, it was wet this fall. Hey, in March, we've had quite a winter. Uh, we've got a lot of snow on the ground that's going to be a slow release and, and really infiltrate into our soils. April, it's still coming. Now snow has turned to rain a lot of times. They can be looking for those stalkers to come in from outside of the operation and offer that service I just mentioned. Um, instead of responding to drought they're looking at stocking up um, you know the the gestation period of of cows is too long it's not like you can just go breed more cows in in a short time frame so the way that we can adapt and accommodate a better forage year is to bring in someone else's animals i've heard pat guptel call it opm other people's money bring other people's money into the into the mix to take advantage of a good situation and and get paid for using your acres or your grass um, so the the common themes i'm seeing about about these adaptive managers is that they're they're always watching they're they know their bottom line they know what their input costs are including depreciation and their cost of labor i'm guilty of this too i never never think about the value of my time when I'm at home working our small acreage. But we need to, all of us as managers, need to pay ourselves for our time. And if we're not actually putting cash in the bank account that the family expenses come out of, that we should at least recognize it in some way. Um, and then any equipment and buildings depreciation too. None of us would go to town and pick up a job that doesn't pay what we think we're worth. So we shouldn't work for that crazy individual that we look at in the mirror every morning for free either, you know, <laughs> I guess is the point. And, and I would say that these adept recognize that, that there's a value for their skills and their time. Other common themes is that I'm not, I'm not tied to these cows or these animals. We'll try to keep it general in conversation. They work for me, not the other way around. Livestock are a tool to manage the landscape. They are not what define us as a rancher or farmer. That's poetic in a way. It's harder to, if, if you had the right perspective, but we have to think about those cows. They're forage harvesters. While we don't diesel fuel into them we just have to put forage in front of them right but are they really that much different than the tractor and the drill and the combine they're harvesters they just happen to have four feet instead of four tires 
Um, that seems to be a, a common thought process is that they are tools. They're not what define this operation. I don't know, Buzz. I'm kind of drawing a blank on other common commonalities amongst adaptive managers, um, but they all seem to recognize that there is a value to everything that's at their fingertips. The that includes the land, the forage, the livestock, and they begin to have a greater understanding of ecological processes because they're observing. I heard your talk with Jim Falstick, and he's, I think it was him that said, if you're going to go down this path, you need to get good at observing and then observe some more and more and more. And the most important thing you can do is observe what's happening on your land. Get out of the pickup, get off your horse and get on your hands and knees and get down to the soil surface and look at all of the diversity of plants that, that God put here for you to manage, to be a steward of. That might be another thing is that that these folks all feel called, regardless of their faith background or if they have any faith at all, they feel called to steward what they have and to do it as well as they possibly can. And you know, something that looks like a prairie dog town or a golf course isn't viewed in the same positive light as something that, you know, has this this almost pixelated appearance is that, you know, the most recently grazed pasture, now you can see that that impact. There's more brown than green there. But the pasture paddock that we were in a month ago is green and growing and lush. The temptation might be to return to that because it is so green and lush. But we know that we're pumping carbon into the soil through this management and building organic matter, improving infiltration, growing pore space and and really restoring soils there's a passion that develops in these folks that uh, is really infectious i think you have it buzz i've watched it i've watched you get excited uh, and i can hear it in your voice if i'm listening to a podcast when somebody says that thing whatever it is and and they've lit a fire in me too uh, to be a an evangelist if you will to share the the message of soil health and it doesn't matter what land use we're talking about. Plants doing photosynthesis build soil. Yeah, yeah. okay. And I, I wanted to ask you a question. We, I've got I've got a lot of questions here, but hey. uh, one that that uh, you 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 put out there right now was you talked about um, pumping carbon into the ground. You, you alluded to photosynthesis. I want to step back a minute on that because it does relate to another question of mine was talking about the rhizosphere and then communicating with other creatures underground. So there's a whole lot of, there's a whole sphere of things. We could do a whole podcast about the rhizosphere, but we're going to do rhizosphere 101. Talk to me about what you mean pumping carbon into the ground? Because that's a really important concept I think we need to get across to folks who are looking at managing their land in a different way. Pumping carbon into the ground sounds so esoteric, almost, you know, maybe I might be put off by that. So go ahead and explain that to me. Okay. If we can agree that plant leaves 
are miniature solar panels. I think that that's a basic biological principle that we can agree on is that plants have these leaves, they capture the sunlight's energy, perform photosynthesis at the cellular level and grow more leaf. While they're growing more leaf, they're sending carbohydrates and sugars from the above ground down into the roots and into the soil. Not necessarily directly into the soil. It's not like they're, they're, there's a pipeline with a, with a faucet down there. But it functions sort of like that. In healthy soils where there's lots of biology, uh, one of the things, you know, mycorrhizal fungi, huge network that, that can help plants access nutrients that are beyond their roots reach. Uh, it can't exist in a tilled system or it won't last for very long in a tilled system, but it will come back if if we go to a, to a no-till regenerative type of, of atmosphere. As those carbohydrates and sugars move from the plant leaves through the stem and down into the roots, that plant communicates with the biology in the soil through root exudates. And what that is, is and as a kid, I can remember this happening. My grandfather introduced me to it. It was it was almost like magic. And he pulled a corn plant out of the ground and he showed me the 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 root tips and how it looked like it glistened in the sun after he knocked a little the little soil particles off. And he didn't call it, he didn't use the term root exudates, but he said, here, take a nibble off of the end of this root that's the the plant communicating with the biology in the soil it's it's sugar in return for some other service this is a, a symbiotic relationship both organisms benefit when the plant will give off these carbohydrates or sugars at the at the root hairs or the root tips in return for that piece of nitrogen or that phosphorus or, or whatever it is and maybe even it was that that water molecule that uh, the, you know, the, the root zone had been exhausted of, but mycorrhizal fungi could share. I don't know all the deep dark science behind all of that, and it's still evolving. I understand our, our, our understanding of that, uh, that activity in the rhizosphere, but pumping carbon into the soil is a product of capturing the sunlight's energy, performing photosynthesis, and to grow more above ground, we have an equal or at least a, a similar growth below ground. We're going to grow more roots, which then if we're going to grow larger, we need more fuel, right? You know, just like humans, if we eat and eat and eat, we're going to grow. Well, if a plant does photosynthesis upon photosynthesis upon photosynthesis and isn't overutilized through or, or some other mechanical harvest mechanism, it needs to grow too, and the below ground portion is going to be growing as well, so long as we don't have above ground reduction. So it's going to start sharing more and more of those carbohydrates and sugars with the biology surrounding it. And when that plant then either goes into dormancy, or, and I also heard your talk with Mitch Faulkner about, you know, up to half of a plant's roots will die back every year in a rangeland system and that's normal and natural what happens to that material below ground when the, when that 50 percent dieback occurs well yes it's replacing those those roots as well through new growth but that material 
is filled with, or it is organic matter. I would like for folks to think of the terms organic matter and carbon as equal planes. Pumping carbon into the soil, we're sending those carbohydrates and sugars down from the above ground to the below ground, growing more roots. If half of those die back, that is the carbon, the organic matter. Um, so we pretty well directly send carbon into the soil, pumping it, if you will, by having healthy grassland plants doing photosynthesis all year round, or as much of the year as, as that soil and that plant isn't completely dormant. So that's what I mean. I, I hope that wasn't a big and scary concept. It's a fairly simple uh, explanation for a very complex process. Um, but that's the way I wrap my mind around things is try to simplify it and in a lot of ways put it in the human context. Yeah, that that was very well explained tense. One of the misconceptions that I had, you know, seven or eight years ago was that the only way organic matter gets into the ground is through decomposition. And uh, it looks like you know, there are two routes through decomposition and then this photosynthesis route. And the photosynthesis route seems to, at least in, in the community that I uh, live in, um, that photosynthesis route, we're beginning to see more and more evidence that that is a, an extremely critical one. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the whole idea of what happens below ground is, is so important and we as surface dwelling creatures have to sort of start thinking about what happens below the ground. So you, you're, a, you're an educator and I think you explained that extremely well. We'd like to briefly interrupt this episode with a word from our sponsor, the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Did you know that the NRCS offers free one-on-one -on -one consultation on your operation? Give your local NRCS office a call, or for more information, visit the link in the show notes of this episode. And now, back to the podcast. Tense, I still have a lot of questions, but we are running out of time. I, um, I, I did, though, want to speak to you about grazing of cool season grasses you know um what's happened to me as as a babe in the woods in this particular field uh is that i did notice that there are differences in philosophy as to how we graze cool season grasses don't want to try and put labels on things but it is interesting and i was wondering if you could explain to us uh what what that looks like in terms of, you know, I've heard of some folks saying, well, let's, you know, abuse it and graze it down to the ground. And the other, you know, you may have another school of thought that, you know, you you, you only take a certain portion of it and, and don't try to abuse it all the time. Uh, rather than getting you to sort of come down on one side or the other, I was wondering if you could possibly give me the pros and cons of those two philosophies. Uh, and before I do that, can I ask you, is that a fairly accurate assessment of those, at least the two philosophies I've come across in in the in that space? Yes, and I can readily think of examples of of both 
Okay. Um, and and, uh, and I think there's for, for some there might be a hinging point and for other practitioners, depending on their understanding of these of these principles and, and plant growth. Um, yeah, they may not necessarily distinguish between desirable and native versus uh, less desirable and non-native. So. Want me to take off with that? Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, please. Because okay. going back to this is one of the largest threats to rangeland right now is invasion of cool season grasses. So your, your, your Kentucky bluegrass, your smooth brome, and then your crested. So this is a really important subject. And what, what has surprised me is how we treat them is is a bit of a hot button issue um, from from both sides mm -hmm. and and so what i'm trying to do without ruffling feathers is is try and understand both sides of the story and are there pros and cons to both sides yeah there i think there definitely are um those that would uh, you know the two the two parties that might disagree i think are going to uh, one's going to really be looking at the long the long results. If we if we if we manage this way, if we if we appropriately graze, take half, leave half. You know the the typical grazing management that we would prescribe on these, especially these invader cool season exotics. If we treat them well early in the season, even before our natives are are really started in in early May and and into April. If we treat those things with appropriate grazing management, quote unquote, the expectation is that they will probably continue to thrive and take a larger portion of of the landscape, the percentage of production on any, any given acre. Um, the good of that is that you will never accidentally hurt your native component either. Um, even as we move into the later Aprils and May when when we know our native cool season grasses have initiated growth and if they haven't hit that that three and a half four and a half or even five leaf stage if if we take if our livestock take too big a bite we put that plant in a situation where they now need to mobilize energy from the roots and the crown of the plant to just grow enough leaf to do photosynthesis right and try to survive the season so so there's a pro of that is that you know if we have exotic cool season grasses um, and we just manage them as if they belong here then then we're not also going to accidentally hurt our native cool seasons that really make our bread and butter for livestock grazing on the flip side uh the thought process being a producer that says i have these invader grasses i want to eradicate them or attempt to if i can't eradicate them i want to get some value out of them and keep them in check that's probably the more realistic approach is i don't know if we'll ever graze them out of existence on this parcel but let's keep an eye on them and get some value out of them so let's graze intensively early let's let's make that plant have to mobilize energy from its roots reserves uh, in order to do photosynthesis, we will have grazed it hard and then moved into the next paddock, into the next pasture. April, May comes along, our native cool seasons begin to initiate growth, 
and and we've maybe even reduced the canopy of our invader species so that so that's a good thing right if soil moisture is adequate our native species can really really thrive there um, that opens the door then to to come back through in say june or something like that and and uh really have our true initial grazing occupation in that in that particular pasture um, that needs to be done with caution uh, this is where the adaptive managers really really thrive because they've observed almost to a fault they recognize that our first occupation when we hit the cool season exotics did not impact the natives now the natives are at that four and a half or five leaf or greater stage it's safe to initiate grazing and then we'll move on um, we're going to leave plenty of cover. We're going to have optimal disturbance, and and the decisions we've made here will enhance diversity and and living roots. The cons of both: um, one, uh, if we if we go back to our first example where we're going to treat everything good with with principles of grazing management, uh, the reasons why are not necessarily uh, important to this conversation, um, but. If it's green and it's a grass and my livestock will eat it, it's a good thing, right? So we're going to treat it well. The negative of that is that, like I mentioned, those cool season exotics then have the opportunity probably to come in over time in a greater proportion of your forage production, which in truth probably results in a lower net production um, when we're talking decades upon decades uh, from what we would consider our reference state or the historic climax plant community. Um, the negative to I'm going to eradicate these invader species uh, while trying to enhance my native species is that sometimes we can stub our toe. If we're there at the wrong time, we are going to have a negative impact on our native species. Um, one of the really, really positive things about adaptive grazing management, call it, it whether you call your your methodology mob grazing or short duration high intensity or whatever um, i've heard practitioners say okay you've got five acres fenced out for this grazing occupation if you have a wreck on this five acres you didn't ruin your your whole ranch you know it's just one year you were only in here for maybe a week or 10 days yes you had a wreck but you did not destroy your profitability for the year. You learned something. Um, I've got a, a slide in one of my presentations that has has the word fail written across the left hand side of the paper and and F.A.I.L. are the first letters of a statement. First attempt in learning, so it's OK to fail if we're on a small scale, but if we've got a thousand acre pasture and turned out the right amount of cattle but left them there for far too long we had a wreck for this year guess what that wreck extends for three four five years down the road because we've negatively impacted that entire 1000 acres if we're fencing that down in smaller units even if they're even if they're 100 acre paddocks and you move across there 10 times the growing season you've only if you had one wreck in that growing season you've really only affected 10 percent of your of your landscape and for a shorter amount of time if you if if we broke a thousand acres into 10 individual paddocks so it's uh 
one of those things about planning. I think that's the, the common thread amongst all of these adaptive managers. I'm going back to an earlier question is, is that this career, this vocation needs to suit our personal needs and desires while making a living. And so we're adapt. We're going to take a four day weekend. We're going to give them more grass than we had the previous. I think I've addressed your, your original question though, Buzz, is that yes, there are pros and cons to both approaches. And and depending on your skill set, your desires, and 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 uh, your goals, really, for for what this ag operation is to you, uh, will drive some of that decision making. And NRCS Conservation District and other partner conservation staff, uh, even even ranchers amongst the mentor network, uh, we want to meet folks where they are and and help them, you know, by asking those probing questions and and. Uh, and get them moving down the road to increase profitability and better uh, better functioning soils. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I think the common thread between both of these guys, because I've seen both operations succeed very well, has been this idea of adaptive management. You know, so yes, we call it prescribed grazing, but we prescribe according to what our observations in the field are. So, you know, my, my dilemma, if you will, is I've seen both work really well, but some guys say, wow, but that system doesn't work at all. And the other guys are like, no, it works. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that, that I, I hope I didn't put you in a, in a difficult spot there. Not um, at all. Yeah. I think the other thing that I'm realizing, though, of course, is that there are times in the year where we need five times the amount of animals mm. uh, in one part of the year, you know, in the spring compared to to the summer. So that's, you know, a lot of this is is talked about uh, in the abstract. We're going to have to have another podcast meeting here, but uh, final question that I have for you is. Um, I'm personally a very conservative person, you know, with my finances, with with decisions I make on on uh, my work and my business and things like that. Um, if I am a season long grazer and you've talked to me and I really want to make progress, but this is overwhelming for me. Tell me what my best first step is in terms of creating that rotate rest recovery philosophy. Buzz, I have to ask, have you been to the grazing school? <laughs> because <laughs> because given given the, the groundwork that you just laid out, if you're conservative with your finances and you're overwhelmed, if if you're a rancher that's looking at this and recognizing there's value in in moving forward, but not sure how I want you to not only take my word for it, but then also come learn from the practitioners. Come to the grazing school, uh, go to a ranching for profit workshop, spend a few hundred or even a few thousand dollars, depending on on you know the the educational network that you plug into and get it from another source. Almost everyone, I think, has Internet capabilities now. Um, whether it's on a smartphone or in their home, start looking at YouTube, uh, search regenerative grazing practices, 
Uh, you don't have to spend money to equip yourself with knowledge and enough of it that you can make an informed decision to take that first step. Um, you can buy for people might argue around the around the value here, but for less than $2,000, you can get a very good temporary fencing setup that's solar charged with a battery backup and enough wire to begin reducing the duration of livestock grazing days across every acre in a pasture. Water accessibility, of course, is a concern, so that has to be approached with some uh, some forethought, but it can be done. And, and uh, I mentioned it before, I'll say it again, we want to meet people where they are, and if they want to make a change, not necessarily in permanent infrastructure, but if they want to make a change in their management, is that there are partners here in South Dakota and across this nation, wherever people are listening from, that, that want to come alongside and help. But ultimately, it's our job to deliver information. It's your job to make a decision and implement it. And don't be so proud to not ask for help when it's not going the way you thought it would. <laughs> because I, I think there's probably more people who have tried and quit than people who have tried and, and succeeded. Uh, as as we approach remembering the R's and trying to improve grazing lands management is that, you know, it's mighty easy to fall back into old habits. We were making a living before. Maybe it wasn't the one as good as we wanted, but we were getting by. Um, I think we have to keep our eye on the prize is that we recognize that neighbor or that person that we heard on um, you know, at the grazing school or at this egg conference we went to in the winter. They're doing it. Why can't we? And, and it's usually the biggest barrier is is the human side is is how do we implement and how do we see it working? Um, and often it's a matter of just asking for assistance. The mentor network is a big, big deal. Um, if it's fencing, if it's water development, if it's um, just how to how much grass do I even have? You know, uh, for those new ranchers that maybe made their made their living doing something else in industry. I have a neighbor right next door here and he comes from an egg background, but let's pretend he doesn't just bought 400 acres and has cows and horses. If if he didn't know how to calculate how much grass is present. I'm going to go help him understand that. Here's how we clip. Here's how we use the South Dakota grazing stick. Um, here's how much your cow really needs to get by because, you know, she is a little bit bigger than a thousand pounds. So we have to look at these calculations on the grazing stick. Um, well, that sounds like a very good place to stop, Tense. I uh, just remember Mitch Faulkner also talking about, you know, when we're talking to producers who want to go down this road, just the amount of rest that you generate by breaking up into two, three or four paddocks and, um, you know, your idea of using that temporary fencing for a relatively small investment. I think that's so important as we start speaking to ranchers. And I hope this goes out. And of course, we're not the only source. Um, and when you were talking about the mentor network, of course, you're talking about the grazing, the South Dakota Grazing Land Coalition. Um, and uh, 
my experience of this whole community is how willing people are to um, share their knowledge. So that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Well, Tents, we've come to the end. I wanted to give you a, a last chance. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us before we sign off? One closing thought as, as I as I shared that, you know, it's not too expensive to go and get some temporary fencing materials. Uh, I have to backpedal just a little bit because one of the closing presentations at that grazing school is uh, is from Judge Jessup, the coordinator, who says, if you believe you need to leave here or listen to this podcast and now believe you need to go buy some fencing materials and start building something, uh, we have failed. Uh, you need to understand uh, how these ecosystem processes work. and. It doesn't matter if you are a new property owner that has just moved to our state and, and really doesn't know because you've never been exposed to these things, or if you're a lifelong rancher. If you don't get it, please ask for some support. Um, you can reach out to Buzz, who will then connect you with me. Um, he has my contact information, email and telephone number. Uh, we'll get you put together with the right person. And and don't feel like if you're in if you're several hundred miles away from where I work, that you can't reach out. Um, these are free services. Um, certainly you can work with a consultant that requires payment for service, but um, to start with, we want to get folks going down the right road and, and uh, nobody has to go at it alone. Yeah, well, the NRCS provides these services for free. This is paid for by the US taxpayer and that's and that's really important. Well, that's a wonderful place to end tense. I'm going to put some of these suggestions that you have, and if you don't mind, I'll put your email in the show notes if people want to contact you, if that's okay. I would certainly welcome that, Buzz. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Tansa, looks like we've already set up for another talk, but it was it was good to talk to you. Um, and so I'm going to sign off and we'll go from there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Buzz. Okay, Buzz, that is our second and final episode with Tans Herman. What was your biggest takeaway from this this second one here that we just had? Well, I just like the way Tans articulates how we do adaptive grazing. Um, and, you know, you're always looking, uh, you're always assessing, and even down to the nearest couple of hours, like with... Um, with Pep Guptill a few um, podcasts ago, you know, he talked about if he goes there and sees that the, the Canadian thistle is still standing, he's going to leave his cows in there for a few more hours until they graze that down and then he moves it. So there's this idea that Pat brings to the table is he sets the plate and the cows come in and do their thing. And once they've eaten everything off the plate, then they move on. So I think um, Tans did a really good job of generalizing it. I think he also did a good job of, of talking about how we deal with cool season grasses. And of course, East River and West River, often it's very different. I think the guys in East River, sometimes especially who have cropping systems, um, may not, uh, you know, sometimes their problem is having the time to get those animals in the cool season grasses in time because they're busy with all sorts of other things. 
But uh, hopefully these takeaways are, are really um, valuable to you. Again, we're, we're trying to have a discussion and hopefully this sparks discussion in the South Dakota grazing lands community. Yes, and if this was useful to you, definitely we would appreciate if you could share it with a friend and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever podcast streaming service that you use. That would always go a long way to helping us keep cranking these out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And certainly uh, it gives us a little bit of feedback. Um, And, you know, if you have any suggestions of who else we need to talk to, that would be great. Or which one of us to cut out, you know? Well, sounds like me and maybe Tance is going to come on as the new host of the Growing Resilience podcast. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see what the people have to say. Well, once again, always check out the show notes for free resources from the NRCS. And I'm sure we'll have some other links down there as well. You forgot something. Um, and that's not just to remember the R's. Who, who are we talking to next time? Well, I don't even want to mention his name. I makes me uncomfortable just to have it in the air. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking to the inimitable Joe Dickey. And uh, so um, that's going to be on the next podcast. For those of you who have been living under a rock um, in South Dakota, uh, we'll be introducing Joe Dickey. And uh, for those of you who are in the ag community, especially the soil health um, community, uh, Joe Dickey needs very little introduction. And I believe if you've been in your car with the radio on this month, this is January while we're recording this, definitely by the time we release this episode, but you might have heard Joe in one of our advertisements on the radio. Uh, that's quite right. He's, he's got the right kind of radio voice, and we've recorded 50 of these things. So you're going to hear Joe for quite a bit. Joe Dickey here with Mentor's Message. There we go. (laughs) Guess who's been editing that? (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, we'll have our episode with Joe coming up next. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Check out the show notes. Remember the R's. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And keep it resilient.